This episode of A Deeper Dive is sponsored by Crunch Time, the industry's leading back-office platform. As we'll talk about in this episode, delivery has become a necessity to compete in today's market, but it can wreak havoc on your food and labor costs. Crunch Time helps control those costs by providing quick, actionable insights into your food and labor operations, allowing your operators to make smarter, cost-effective decisions. Since 1995, Crunch Time has saved its customers millions of dollars every year by increasing their operational efficiencies. Visit CrunchTime.com today to request a free demo and put your restaurants on a path toward higher profits. How do you follow one of the most expensive but important trends in the restaurant industry and still make a profit? Habit Burger believes it has an answer, higher prices. Hello, I'm Jonathan Mays, executive editor of Restaurant Business Magazine, and in this week's edition of A Deeper Dive, I speak with Russ Bendell, the CEO of Habit, who talks about the chain's response to the delivery trend. The fast casual burger chain insisted on making the service profitable from the get-go. Russ talks about what his company did to accomplish that goal. He also talks about consumer reaction to the higher prices, as well as the delivery providers themselves. Russ also talks about the burger market and his own chain's continuing growth. And later in the podcast, I talk about those millennials and their impact on restaurant industry sales. But first, here's Russ Bendel. Russ, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me, Jonathan. So uh, you've been in the restaurant space for a little bit, sir. Have you been uh, have you been involved with the space at a time when there is as much change going on in the industry as there are today? Well, you know that's a, that's a that's an interesting question. I think is any time I've as long as I've been in this industry, we always talk about change and the pace of change. But it certainly feels in today's environment that the pace of change in regards to both the consumer, um, technology, convenience, the regulatory environment we're in certainly feels like the pace of change has certainly not slowed down and maybe the pace is, is more rapid than ever. How does a uh, you know how does how does an executive sort of keep up with that? And I mean, is that does that given the amount of you know the amount of activity we're seeing today, whether it's normal or not? I mean, how do you how do you keep up with that sort of thing and 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 make sure that you're 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 keeping you're addressing um you know addressing these trends in the right way? Yeah, um, interesting. The um, I mean, think about think about that a lot. And I think is, you know, you, if you're in the chain business and you have, you know, multiple locations and you're fortunate enough to, to build a team, I think you really have to rely on the, the total quality of the team and who you bring on board that have uh, certain specific areas of expertise besides uh, general business acumen in the restaurant space and, and, and rely on, on the people that, that you have to be subject experts in, in a lot of different areas. Mm -hmm. So I want to ask you about a couple of things you guys have going on. One is uh, drive-thrus. You have 
uh, as I, um, if, if I'm not mistaken, you have th- drive throughs now in 35 locations and, and you're, you're adding more. Is that, uh, um, you know, where's the, the state of that and, and how are you finding the, the, the drive through working? Obviously you must like it. Yeah, that, that, that's correct. We have approximately 35 of them today on about 260 total locations. Um, about half of our development schedule um, last year were drive-throughs. We did 14 drive-throughs on 30 new company-operated locations. This year, 2019, um, the uh, that'll be uptick percentage-wise slightly. We opened our first drive-through in 2010 when we had less than 50 locations. Um, today, we really think it falls into the con- uh, convenience factor. You know, convenience and all access are big buzzwords in our industry today, and it certainly addresses lifestyle. You know, early on. I think drive-throughs were more associated with traditional QSR um, uh, and brands that necessarily did not cook to order, use maybe the highest, freshest quality ingredients. But time has certainly um, changed that perception. You have you have brands like Starbucks that um, uh, introduced drive-throughs many years ago. Um, you see Panda Ex- Express um, having many drive-throughs, even, you know, uh, another large brand, Panera Bread, has certainly uh, more than put their toe in to drive-throughs. And, and, and we found, you know, in 2010, we opened our first one. And then the next three years, we did one each year as we learned and 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 uh, discovered how to execute it but our customers told us they wanted they were willing to wait a little longer because as as in if you're dining in or going through the drive through at habit habit we don't we don't start cooking your food till it's ordered and our cook times are approximately 6 minutes but we found people were willing to wait a little longer to be able to have higher quality, made-to-order, bolder flavors, and 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 uh, uh, an order that could be uh, 100% customized. So you know, it's it's been well received, and as I said, you know, approximately we see long term probably about half of our lo- new locations will be uh, in the drive-through format. We're certainly not abandoning abandoning our traditional end cap dine-in only location, but uh, the drive-throughs have been, um, we're bullish on them. Is there, uh, how do you determine whether, um, you know, a certain market is, is, should have a drive-through location or not? You know, it's really more site specific as we identify, you know, trade areas and then specific uh, sites in that trade area, it, you know, we're, we're looking really more at the quality of the real estate to better determine if it's a drive-through opportunity or it's a, a more traditional retail 
type um, location. And the one thing uh, the drive-through scenario has done, it, it's really opened up the universe of potential sites to be much larger. Because if you look in maybe more rural areas that aren't as densely populated, but are uh, have freeway access, you know, they, they certainly wouldn't necessarily be the right opportunity for um, our uh, more traditional uh, location, but it, it, they many times do lend themselves to being a uh, potential drive-through uh, location. But but and but they've you you found that even even in a concept that takes six minutes, uh, as you said, to to make the food, people still would still or a certain percentage of customers still just like the drive-through, don't like getting out of their car. Yes, yes, that is, that mm-hmm. that is certainly for sure. You know, and we have drive-throughs in some of our newer markets. We just opened our first one in North Jersey, but. Um, by and large, most of the drive-throughs, most all the drive-throughs we have are in more mature, established markets where the the brand awareness of the habit is is, is probably higher. And again, mm-hmm. other concepts such as Panera Bread and, and 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 even Panda have kind of paved the way for that. Mm-hmm. I, I I find this 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 trend because we we're seeing I mean as you've mentioned you're 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 hardly the only one uh, the only fast casual concept doing this um, you know several others are um, in 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 many different sectors even Chipotle is 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 developing its own form of the drive through and I, I don't know maybe I'm the only one but it's it's interesting because I think fast casual chains had had kind of historically resisted the idea for various reasons. Um, and, and, and more recently have found that at the end of the day is, you know, a certain percentage of customers and, and it might even be a majority of customers really like the convenience of, of simply being able to stay in the car and get their food and go on as, as, as consumers increasingly shift to more convenience oriented, uh, you know, visits, you know, that, that the drive through is still fundamentally, uh, one of the most convenient uh, uh, strategies a restaurant can have. You, you you summed it up very accurately. It really falls into that that category of convenience. And with today's customer, um, convenience trumps a lot of other things. Mm-hmm. I want to talk about another um, convenience-oriented strategy because I think your 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 you know the way you're going about this is interesting. Delivery. Um, you have deals now with both DoorDash and and Postmates. Could you talk a little bit about um, you know your sort of multi-provider delivery strategy? Yeah, um, third-party delivery um, is certainly one of the biggest buzzwords in the industry today. You know, an, another another platform that certainly falls under convenience, and 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 customers want to access your brand in in many uh, non traditional um, methods than they have in the past. And as as we looked at third party delivery, we had a couple of key points of criteria. 
that were um, non-negotiable on our part to be able to introduce it. First, it had to be profitable. We weren't we weren't looking to add a uh, significant uh, sales driver that we did not make money at. And second, we had to have a solution that was integrated into our uh, kitchen display and POS system. We weren't we were not comfortable with uh, being provided tablets and the order come from the third party aggregator uh, to a tablet in our location. And someone had to take it from the tablet and then manually input it into our system. You know, our restaurants are, 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 are generally very busy, especially at, at, at key times. And nothing more frustrating to a customer in line watching someone stop doing what they're doing to, to input an order um, from, from, from that third party. So, you know, it had to be profitable and we had to have a solution that was directly integrated. And that, that took us a little longer to work through those uh, technology solutions. Um, and we also um, made a decision that on the third-party delivery uh, platforms, we were going to have a 25% upcharge, again, just on those platforms for those orders to help offset the cost and, and the commissions of, of, of those organizations. And um, so we, we didn't implement with DoorDash until about one year ago. It was in Q2 of 2018. By the end of 2018, we were in a uh, smaller test with Postmates. And earlier this year, um, in, the, in the first quarter of 2019, we are now fully integrated with both uh, Postmates and, and DoorDash. So you have a 25% upcharge on, on the item. So if, in other words, like if I order, if I have a, a $10 order, I would have a $2.50 upcharge on that order for or having a, for ordering delivery through one of these providers? Yes. And, and that 25% is reflected in each uh, menu item as you look at it on their platform. And, right. you know, one thing I will, I will say, Jonathan, at, at Habit, if you look at the price points, of our products, we have always been positioned as the everyday value player. And our price points on, on burgers compared to our uh, more direct, better burger competitors are 20 to 25% underneath that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, that's, that's fascinating because I've, I've, you know, we're as as we record this. I just we just got done with the restaurant leadership conference, and in fact, yesterday I actually recorded another podcast with another operator who said the exact same thing that they are um, upcharging for delivery orders, and that seems to be where this is going for a lot of companies because of the fact that the delivery providers, you know, charge fees of up to 30 percent and to make this thing work uh, from a profitability standpoint at a time when many of these companies are already facing a lot of other cost challenges such as labor and rent um this seems to be where this is going let me ask you this question are, are you seeing any impact at all on the orders when you when you do that when you upcharge 
No, really uh, very little pushback. And again, we uh, we uh, started delivery with those charges. And we may have been, I don't know if we were the very first, but we certainly were an early adapter of that strategy. And you certainly see more companies, to your point, doing that. You know, at, at the end of the day, you know, with the commission structures the, the way they are, someone has to pay for that convenience. Mm-hmm. Right. And yeah, I mean, um, as you know, as I think that this is sort of where that business is going, is that consumers, delivery consumers are going to have to pay higher rate, higher prices for, um, you know, for their delivered food, because the simple fact of the matter is that at a time at, you know, as we stand in 2019, you know, it's, it costs a lot of money. It costs more money today to operate a restaurant than it ever did. And, you know, you got wages are rising because of minimum wage and because of intense competition for labor. You have rent costs are going up. Commodities will probably start going up here again some point soon, uh, you know, especially as, you know, as we have other, as inflation takes hold. So, I mean, we have a lot of different challenges and, and, you know, to add a 30% fee on an increasing percentage of your orders. I mean, ultimately, somebody has to bear that cost. You said it very accurately. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you're, you're hardly I'll say that. I mean, I've as we I mean, as I'm recording this, you know, I talked to somebody yesterday who said the same thing, that they're charging higher menu prices for delivery orders. And at the rest, recent restaurant leadership conference, you know, there was some talk a lot about that, that, that ultimately people had to pay for it. And they seem to be willing to do so because customers really want that convenience. Correct. Right. Right. So um, now what's does where did you get any pushback from the providers? Were you able to get uh, or or is that why you've gone with multiple delivery service providers? Uh, you know, early on when we were in discussions, you know, they weren't as excited about it. But, you know, it, it was if we if we were going to do it again, back to our criteria, you know, this was going to be profitable sales. Mm-hmm. And, right. and we, and we have that, we have that, we have those upcharges on both platforms. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Okay. Super. So um, how, so how are you guys uh, doing in terms of, of development? Where are you guys at right now? How many, ex- how many locations you expect to open this year? Yeah. Our development plans uh, for 2019 are to open uh, uh, between 21 and 23 company-operated locations. You know, 70, approximately 70% of those uh, locations will be in the West, um, our more mature markets, more established markets. Um, obviously, that's California, um, Utah, Arizona, Nevada, uh Idaho and Washington State, and then approximately 30% will be on the East Coast, focused primarily on northern New Jersey and uh, the East Coast of Florida. Mm-hmm. How's that East-West strategy gone? Um, that, that's kind of, it's not easy to make a jump from being a primarily West Coast concept to jumping all, all the way across the country. How is that? Obviously, you must be pretty pleased with the way that's going because you're developing more units there. 
Sure. You know, um, new markets, no matter where they are, um, behave pretty similarly. They tend to open at lower volumes than your more established markets. But as, as they mature, they comp at a, at a uh, much higher rate than the base does. You know, and as, you know, we opened our first location in North New Jersey in 2014. And today I believe we have approximately 26 or 27 locations on, on the East Coast. And as, as we, uh, you know, 10 years ago, there were less than 20 habit locations all in the LA, uh, area. Today, again, we have approximately 260 total locations in, in 11 different states and four locations in China. Um, you know, the new markets, you know, are, are always a challenge. But as we, in 2011, we had locations in, in all of California. We were in Utah. We were in Arizona. And as we looked at where our next market would be, if you look at, you know, the country and the concentration of populations, it, population, it's really concentrated on both coasts. Um, not that there aren't pockets in the Midwest that are, that are good markets. And at, at, at some point we will certainly, uh, probably be in those locations. But if you look from, you know, the Eastern seaboard, you know, by, by go, by planting the flag in North Jersey and South Florida and also in the Mid Atlantic, Washington DC area, you know, that would allow us to be able to grow contiguously with a brand creep strategy for a very, very long period of time. And, and we're pleased with it. our stores in those markets are, are, are performing at the expectations we set for them. And we continue to develop, you know, 25 to 30% of our new stores are in those markets. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Is it so? Talk a little bit about the the operating environment in California. You still have you have a lot of your stores um, are are in the state, and I probably don't need to tell you that it's expensive to do business there. How is that going? Yeah, it, it's obviously doing well. You know, we have an advantage. You know, the habit started in California 50 years ago. This year, um, just uh, in in Santa Barbara, in uh, right by the University of California, Santa Barbara. And, you know, our our first 30 or 40 restaurants were all in California, primarily Southern California. So we understand the environment and the uh, operating challenges of California. You know, it certainly has its challenges, but it certainly has a very strong consumer base uh, with discretionary income. And, you know, we understand it, are comfortable with it, and, uh, you know, we'll continue to um, uh, penetrate California uh, more and more with location. Mm -hmm. and I, I think, and in, in, uh, it's my perception just beyond that, that that, that has to be maybe the toughest uh, market for a burger chain 
um, in the United States, given the level of competition and the number of, I mean, you have in and out there, but you also have, you know, you, you have Jack in the box as a strong presence. You have, um, uh, you know, you have fat burger and you have a lot of chains that are, that are right. out there. And, and it, it, it just seems to be, and is any, any sense as to why it's such a, 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 a good market for, for a burger chain? Why is it, why is it so tough? You know, there's competition everywhere, man, especially when you're in the burger category. Um, you know, the burger category is over a hundred billion dollars. In, in revenue each year. It's historically been dominated by traditional QSR brands. You mentioned Jack in the Box. Carl's Jr. has a very strong presence mm -hmm. in California. You know, the four largest uh, QSR flags, uh, McDonald's, Burger King, uh, Wendy's, and Sonic have over 30,000 locations domestically alone, you know, but, but the better burger category, you know, you mentioned another great brand in and out iconic mm -hmm. brand, um, started here in Southern California over 60, uh, plus years ago, you know, we're celebrating our 50th anniversary this, this year. But if you look at that better burger category, um, uh, more, you know, in the fast casual arena, you know, in total, it's only about four to five billion dollars. Five guys is, you know, has the most locations, a private, a private company, Smashburger, Habit, you know, Shake Shack, of course, a, a, another incredible brand, you know, in and out, you can, you, you know, in and out, maybe a tweener between fast casual or better burger and more traditional QSR, but certainly iconic. And, and, and these brands address consumers' lifestyle, I think, uh, more directly, um, higher quality ingredients, made to order, a commitment to fresh, bolder flavors, the ability to customize. And long term, that's where consumers are, are, are migrating to. So mm -hmm. while it may be a crowded category, you have, you know, four to five billion dollars in revenue chasing a hundred plus billion dollar category. Right, right. Where where do you is it I mean, are you do you think your guys are growing the category? Are you taking business away from traditional QSRs? Where do you think you're getting your business from? Yeah, that, that's a that's a good question. And from some segmentation work. We, we have done it over the years. You know, we believe that about, uh, about 25% of our customers are trading up from traditional QSR and about 25% of our customers are coming from, um, the lower price points of full service, more mm -hmm. casual dining, the bar, the bar grill category of full service. Right. And then do you think the rest of the other half is just sort of organic? Um, yeah, you're, you're, hmm. you're just sharing customers from, you yeah. know, all categories. Right. Right. Yeah. So it's, yeah, it's, it's sort of a, it, you know, it's an interesting strat. It's an interesting, uh, you know, scenario as, you know, as better burger chains have, have, um, 
you know, have emerged and, and sort of getting customers from, from, from primarily three different places. And I mean, I've heard that before. So sort of taking business from the top and then taking business uh, from the, from the bottom and then, and then, you know, and then just sort of an existing fast, casual customer that's sort of developed really over the past decade or two. Um, and, uh, you know, sort of developing kind of an interesting competitive dynamic. So, you, you know, because you not only compete against McDonald's, but you also compete against Applebee's. Exactly right. Exactly mm -hmm. right. Right, right. Is it, is it, I mean, do you also face, so my other suspicion with, with the burger space is that maybe the biggest challenge is that you have, or maybe arguably the biggest competitor, especially as you start expanding into new markets is regional and local burger concepts. And I know, I mean, I'm in Minneapolis and we have our own local burger places that, that tend to be preferred. And, and, you know, if you go down to Texas, it's Whataburger. If you're in California, of course, it's in and out. And, you know, if you go to different places, I mean, they have sort of their well-loved burger concepts that that uh, is that uh, I mean is that a, a, a tough competitive set for you you know no matter what segment you're in it, it, it's a competitive set and you know we pride ourselves on being an operating company um, certainly not without challenges at times mm -hmm. but um, you know we feel that we can block and tackle and execute and provide a a great employee and customer experience that uh, builds builds volumes and sales over time, and um, have uh, humbly been uh, pretty successful at having uh, relatively high AUVs uh, compared to all of those other um, uh, competitors you you have mentioned. And one unique thing about the Habit is that we're burger-centric. It's in our name, the Habit Burger Grill. But burgers are the largest category on the menu, but they represent only 40% of our revenue. 60% comes from other items, other mm -hmm. entree items, whether they be char-grilled sandwiches. We cook everything on a char broiler, which is unique in the category. Um, we do fresh chicken. We do a sushi-grade ahi tuna sandwich. We, we sear uh, medium rare. We have entree salads. So our reach and our breadth of menu is certainly, we believe, a competitive advantage for us that eliminates the veto vote. Um, we've always worked very hard to be gender neutral Almost half of our customers are women, and for a uh, better burger concept uh, to have 50% of your customers being female, we we believe that is uh, important to our success. By by being more female focused, we tend to do more families, and if you tend to do more families, you generally we believe drive higher dinner sales. Dinner represents exactly 50% of our revenue, so our day part split is is equal, um, and we believe that uh, uh, lends itself to higher average unit volumes. Sure, yeah, yeah. Uh, I think sometimes it's easy to forget women like burgers too, and um, certainly I know my wife does, so... Um, sir, I think that was uh, uh, fantastic, and I really appreciate you taking the time out uh, uh, for me today to be on the podcast. 
Great. Well, I appreciate uh, you taking your time and interest in the habit, Jonathan. My pleasure. Last week, I wrote about millennials reducing the frequency of their dining, which appears to be one of the primary reasons industry traffic has declined for the past three years. I put the topic to my Twitter followers to help understand why. Millennials are currently the biggest generation in the country, and the group is entering its big restaurant spending years. If they are reducing visits, well, that could be a problem. Some cite delivery services and millennials need to stay home. Twitter user Kelly C. Egan at Kelly C. Egan said millennials prefer to stay at home and view restaurant visits as less of a social activity. Indeed, as at Arshad Parvez notes, a 2017 Bank of America study said that millennials are being pushed into more telecommuting and freelance work, and that dramatically impacts the restaurant business. Money is another issue, says Mickey Maynard at Culinary Woman. Indeed, millennials have a lot of debt. They are worse off than previous generations, and they have to cut back. That could be especially true as millennials enter the parenting years when they have kids and more mouths to feed and more expenses. Don Fox, the CEO of Firehouse Subs and a past guest on this podcast, noted that e-commerce is replacing traditional brick-and-mortar retail visits. That decrease in retail traffic is being felt at restaurants, and millennials are frequent online shoppers. Whatever the reason, if younger consumers are reducing their visits, there will be more pressure on the industry to adapt in the coming years to get them engaged, and that likely means more delivery and takeout. Thank you to my Twitter followers for helping me with this week's comment. We know how hard you're working to increase sales at your restaurant, so it makes sense to seek out popular services like delivery. But if you're spending too much time on food and labor, you might not be seeing the profits you deserve. That's where Crunch Time helps. Crunch Time's innovative food and labor operations platform allows you to identify and eliminate wasteful spending. When you optimize these costs, your profits go up. Since 1995, Crunch Time has saved its customers millions of dollars every year on food and labor costs. Isn't it time you started saving too? Visit crunchtime.com today to request a free demo and put your restaurants on a path toward higher profits. And that's it for this week's edition of A Deeper Dive, which was edited by Christine Cawthon. Artwork by Nico Hines and Sarah Stewart. Contributors to this podcast include Pat Kobe, Peter Romeo, Sarah Rushworth, and Heather Lally. You can find this and other episodes on the podcast on our website at www.restaurantbusinessonline.com backslash article backslash podcast. You may also find them on iTunes, Google Play, and TuneIn Radio. I'm Jonathan Mays, your host and podcast producer. Thank you for listening.